0: Welcome to Lean Back, I'm Lisa
1: and I'm Laura
0: and today we're talking about despair and we're recording this episode after Two weeks of sustained uprisings across the country in the wake of more uh, anti-Black police killings and thinking about the role of despair in American public life. Laura, what do you think are some of the biggest factors in producing contemporary despair in the U.S.?
1: Well, obviously, as it relates to these protests, there's structural racism, particularly in our policing infrastructure that has resulted in a tremendous amount of despair. But also there's widespread despair due to economic circumstances like our housing crisis and how expensive housing is, even for people with incredibly low wages. And uh, wages also <laughs> are a structural issue that um is leading to- a, a lot of despair um lack of mental health care resources it's <laughs> there's like a litany of issues that are inherent to our culture that are like a breeding ground for feelings of despair.
0: yeah, I think I'm thinking a lot about healthcare care because there's this convergence between um you know, mass incarceration, over policing, and police force, especially in the wake of the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, Tony McDade, and George Floyd, but also in thinking about the gross neglect and negligence of the federal government and also the state governments in managing the COVID pandemic, that that convergence, I think, is producing despair in, in a very different way. So where you know, Black Lives Matter has been organizing since the murder of Trayvon Martin. It does seem like having 40 million people unemployed and having health care tied to employment has created a, a kind of wake up call across the country that it, where, you know, the police murders are what catalyzes a moment. Um, in social movement theory, we call that a precipitating event that is part of a much larger complex system of oppression. And it's interesting to watch this unfold now as a public historian, because, you know, I think people both because of the unemployment and because they're working at home, they have more time. And the despair has hit a fevered pitch where there's interest convergence between a lot of different groups that couldn't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily show up for public protests, certainly not of this scale. I mean, even in the civil rights movement, there were not organized protests of this scale that lasted for such a duration across the entire country. And so it's a really remarkable thing to think about how over-policing and lack of health care are contributing to the mobilization of all of these people for such a sustained time. And it's only going to increase, I think, in Arkansas, for example, massive protests in Little Rock where protesters took over 6, the i 630 which is the major highway that cut the black community off from downtown. And so it's a really symbolic but also material thing to occupy that highway when it's the intention behind creating it was to exacerbate the redlining that had already produced structural segregation in Little Rock. And I think that as the protests continue this summer, we're going to see activists, you know, creating these connections for a larger public who hasn't always been attentive to oppression, thinking about public transportation and highways and how black mobility has been limited by them. And, you know, things like that, these structural issues that really undermine the health and welfare of communities of color, but especially the black
1: communities. I like the conversations around divesting from the police then encourages a conversation about where those resources can be better invested, um, especially in ways that are community driven um, and actually get at the heart of a lot of these issues.
0: Yeah, I like divestment. I, I, I was reviewing an essay for publication and we were having an internal conversation in the marginalia about apartheid. Because fundamentally, that's what's happening is that people are waking up to the way in which uh, the U.S. culture has been structured as an apartheid structure that very clearly um, materially privileges white people and talking about divestment as a way of understanding resources. Right. Like, you know, bad faith arguments point to good cops, which is shitty, shitty arguing. But at the end of the day, it's like, look at the massive budgets that municipal police you know departments have especially in the big cities and compare that to any other social service in the entire city and if you scale that up to the states or to the you know the the US as a whole it's so massive it's so clear and it's been, I have to say, as somebody who's written about police and prisons for her entire career, to watch people share infographics about their municipal budgets and the massive overinvestment in police has been really interesting. And, you know, it's not coincidental that the police have all of these tools of repression that started as a way of managing white anxiety in the federal government about the civil rights protests. So during the Johnson administration in 67, 68, the Democrats authorized a ton of dual-use technology and decommissioned technology from the Vietnam War to go to municipal municipal police departments to stave off civil rights activism. And so the relationship between police technology and activist protests, is it's intertwined, and it has been for, you know, 70 years, really.
1: One thing that uh, gets me about some of the narratives around this protest is... That a lot of dissenting voices are critical of the violence in the protests, but I feel like they ignore a lot of, a lot of what underlies that budget is just how military the police are yeah. and how much violence takes place. Like you're mad at the violence that occurs in these protests, but there's so much violence that happens at the hands of the police that is condoned by the state and is often hidden, you know?
0: I mean, it's so so asymmetrical, okay? So the fact that the police have blanket immunity from prosecution, basically, and they have uh, their police unions guarantee them access to any files that are used in cases where the individual officers are named, either in criminal or civil court, makes them a really pernicious... Um, force in American public life. So they are producing more violence than they are stopping or, and they're certainly not preventing violence, but you know, in both prison power and black feelings, I write about riots and I have a whole chapter in black feelings where I talk about how riots are what happen when people don't have access to any of the traditional means of political redress. And so because they've been locked out of every single Avenue of political participation, They have no other choice but to resort with huge demonstrations so that their issues can be taken seriously. And the Trump administration has locked out any progressive conversation about race, obviously. I mean, it's totally a white nationalist presidency. So to see that catalyzing movement activism in this way, I think, is really profound, especially given the number of white people that are participating in the protests. There was nothing like that in the civil rights movement. The number of white people participating looked nothing like this. Nothing. It is radically different. And to see how many white people are divesting money into like bail funds and decarceration efforts and Black Lives Matter organizations and things like that, that just the the money alone as an indication of support from white people to communities of color um especially black folks, but also like the Cherokee Nation and all of these uh, other tribal units that are mass being savaged by COVID and by the, the horrific lack of response by the federal government. That, I think, is new and is a reason for um a recommitment of people to movement politics in a way that they hadn't before.
1: Uh, I think one thing that is becoming increasingly clear is that the justice system fails. You know, it just <laughs> is completely <laughs> insufficient and it gets it wrong a lot. And there's a lot of, I think there's um a new movie out that traces Brian Stevenson's work. And he, you know, is a really big advocate of justice reform because there are all of these situations where prosecutors go after especially black men for crimes without the sufficient evidence. And Ava DuVernay's movie last year, when they see us same thing, central park five, there's just a deep history of the state getting, being racist and putting people behind bars. So I think it's becoming increasingly clear that there are people in prison who should not be there. And a lot of it's racially motivated.
0: Yeah. I mean, despair is a racial feeling. So, you know, I write about it at length in black feelings because it, it it's so, it so permeates accounts of the sixties. It, it's like them it's it, that and hope are the two most used political feelings In every kind of discourse, whether it's governmental discourse or activist discourse. And that's because America sees itself as exceptional. Like everything here is great and everybody here is good and not, you know, all lives matter and not all cops and all of that stuff is so exceptionalist. And that speaks to the impulse of the U.S. to lord its economic success as somehow inherent moral worth. And it's a problem because white people consistently articulate hope and, and black people consistently articulate despair, and that tracks with the material conditions of both groups. However, we're in a moment now where a lot of white people also feel despair, and that's what's creating, I think, more of a, um interest convergence. And it's moving the Overton window, I think, in terms of the kinds of actions white people are willing to take with their money and their bodies. The problem is though that white people don't know how to be activists. They don't know how to protest. They don't know how to show up in marches. They don't know how to be good allies. So their their despair right now is so new that they're flailing about right and and they're real chaotic and they can't take direction they can't take criticism because they have all this white fragility and so then they get their feelings hurt and they get bitchy and mopey and then they can't continue with the activism because they don't have the thick enough skin to hear real critique about how they participated in racist structures so I think moving forward from this moment is really, I think, a call for white people to manage their fragility and be able to listen to critique and take direction. Because white people don't want to listen to other people lead. Right. They think that they're inherently good leaders. They're shitty listeners. They can't hear other perspectives well. And so they their despair is overwhelming them and they, they have no tools to process it. See also no mental health care. So it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, white people generally, but white communities in particular, manage their feelings of precarity and anxiety and despair right now in ways that are structurally productive for black people and other people of color.
1: I feel like this movement has done a good job of communicating that white people need to listen, <laughs> you know, like share black people's voices you can follow their lead, and I think that's an important message. What do you What do you think about the knee jerk uh, reactions to the protests, though, on the other side, like the hostility that people have um, towards a movement that has liberation at its heart?
0: Oh, I mean, what is there to say about that? They are assholes. So those people are deeply invested in fantasies about their own power and they can't manage. They cannot manage the fact that all of these other people, including their neighbors and the country, are out, you know, protesting the worldview that they are deeply invested in, you know, personally, socially, financially. So they can't manage the the, the gap there and they're not going to come along. Right. That's 40 percent just straight off the top. That's not going to come along. That's inherently antagonistic towards people of color generally and black people, especially. They want they take pleasure in uh, pain. Right. Their own or others. And they have no way out of that for a whole host of reasons. So I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them, except to say that structurally the culture has always reduced white supremacy as a precondition for white citizenship and some people have more fidelity to that than others but they're not flippable so that's like mm-hmm. not a thing that's that's not a good use of everybody's time for people who are interested in movement politics it's like how do we get the other 60 percent to get on the same fucking page that is the that's the only question of the moment is for the 60 percent of people who are like this is whack the president is trash the nation is collapsing the covid crisis is just like the straw that broke the camel's back the police murders are now like undeniable that that's where the movement activism is, is to capture the folks in the 60% that have never participated in movement politics and you know they're all up over my Social media. What do I read? Where do I go? What can I join? What do I do? I feel so impotent because they do, because they have no idea how to be effective, because they've never stepped outside of their own bubble. Right. To identify with other people in a way that, you know, was vulnerable and honest. And so they have no they have no idea what the path is because they were never curious enough or brave enough to. Move that way. And so, you know, a lot of the movement things that are going to come up that are going to be points of contestation are really about white people who fundamentally do not know black people, do not know them intimately, do not have relate. I don't mean my one black friend from high school. I mean, no people of color, not just black people, but especially black people at all. And that is about fear. So, you know, I think for white activists, new activists, is, you know, they are in the process of trying to figure out their own fear about black people and also their intrinsic animosity towards black communities. That's the thing to get a hold yeah. of. But it has to be. If you're going to be an honest ally, you've got to stop being fucking afraid of black people. There's just there's no way around it. So it's like that is the one thing that new white activists have got to get their head around and do the work on. And that means vulnerability and it means honesty and it means failure. It means they're going to fuck up. It means they're going to get yelled at. They're going to get called out and they still have to continue moving forward because that's that's like the lowest cost of entry is to get yelled at because you fucked up at a, a rally or something or fucked up on the Internet. That's like the smallest thing possible and why people can't manage it because they know they participate because yeah. they have guilt about how how much they have participated in an inherently racist system for their whole life.
1: I guess I want to segue into talking about scapegoating mm-hmm. because I think um what I like about these movements is that it's clear what the problem is. Like we are addressing this issue with our police state. There are direct problems we can address that we cannot look away from. And I think that for a long time, our our culture has scapegoated those issues. Like they have not addressed the problem at hand.
0: I think that that's right. I mean, the thing is, is that this is an accountability moment. And it's weird because we there was no accountability for Donald Trump. Right. And so because there's no accountability for him or the GOP writ large between, you know, 2016 and today, and there certainly wasn't for the George W Bush administration now that accountability is being filtered out through the white liberals and the you know fence sitters and the GOP polls who switch sides and that is an uneven process of the distribution of accountability right so those white people are managing feelings of intense self-loathing and self-hatred and failure, and, um, you know, to varying degrees, obviously, but that they are reckoning with white accountability in a way that they never had before, in part because they're not being ground out by 80-hour work weeks because they're not fucking at work. So there's been this, I don't know, um, reprieve from producing hypercapital that is giving them the space to you know, come to terms with their own whiteness. And again, that's uneven, right? So it, it feels different for the poor than it does for, you know, middle class or furloughed white people. Nonetheless, there is this sort of pause in capitalism right now that's creating space for, I think, this emotional reckoning with participation in racist violence. And scapegoating and gaslighting have been the tools of this administration to shrug off accountability. In addition to not fully funding the fucking federal government. I mean, that dude in the white house is running without a full fucking cabinet. He hasn't even filled all the spots, right. Since he was elected, people don't want to work for him. So like the federal government is like, has all these donut holes in it, right. Where there's nobody plugging up the holes in the dam and it's bursting. And so what you have are these, you know, huge pockets in the cities, but then these smaller pockets in rural towns where folks are like, okay, well, I have the mental space and the fucking time to grapple with what is happening in the news. And it's it's so different than the Vietnam anti-war protests during the Vietnam War. It's so different from student activism. I mean, this is a really fundamentally different kind of social moment. And people are tired, I think, of the lack of accountability at the top that has always benefited them. I mean, whether they, whether they knew it or not, whether they actively sought it or not, it fundamentally benefited white people to not have white accountability at the top. This is going to be very unpopular. But that shit started with Bill Clinton trying to define oral sex as not sex for the modern era. Not that there weren't other liars in chief, but for that moment, that public moment, of trying to scapegoat Monica Lewinsky, pave the way for this shit. So it's not like it's just a Republican thing. Let's be honest about that.
1: I think it's becoming abundantly clear with how this administration handled or really didn't handle the coronavirus situation. and the language about reopening the economy, we can't let the cure be worse than the disease, like because of the coronavirus. But you do little to combat the economic devastation from predatory lending or from there being no housing. And now you're asking people to go back to work for less money. And, you know, it's like, and the, you find out that all of the businesses that were offering bonuses and raises for people working on the front lines or rescinding those and people are working for rock bottom wages again, you know, in the middle of a pandemic.
0: I think that this is a massive reckoning with capital, right? I and and I And I feel it in a very large way. So there are all of these memos and things about human capital, like in Arkansas, the governor put out this statement about human capital, which is too close to chattel slavery for me. But, you know, and also just in terms of the way that there has been this pause in hyper production and also hyper consumption. And I think that that is creating a different series of um, experiences, uh, especially for white people, where they're like, "Ooh, do I need to work that hard? Do I need to overproduce? Do I need to consume that much? And that's not to say there aren't still assholes being like, well, you know, I want to go tubing on the lake and eat hot wings, open my state. I don't give a fuck about other people because those people are the 40 percent. Okay, but I do think that for the the newly attentive public, especially the white public they are grappling with an entirely different set of social circumstances that is challenging their habits. It's the thing about habitus, right? It's how you create a life around predictable routine. And all of that routine has been completely destroyed or at least fundamentally altered, and it's not going to change soon. So there is a way in which the Trump administration has accelerated This reckoning with whiteness and with white production and accumulation and consumption that I think is redirecting attention towards class. And because there's not been a strong labor movement in the United States since, you know, Reagan basically killed the unions, that is interesting to me that you know, um, there is an opportunity to now to talk about wealth and restructuring wealth and smash and grab capitalism and wages in a way that did not exist when the S&P continued to be so high and unemployment was so low, even though people were working two or three jobs. And so I think that even though white people are new to feeling despair, and I don't have a lot of empathy about that. I do think that this is a moment for people to understand that producing activist work and divestment work and listening and managing fragility and Showing up, those things help work against the despair and they help to build coalitional class politics, which is where sustain, sustainable movement energy is. I mean, you can't sustain movements with separatism. That has been tried and there, there were great things that came out of separatist movements of all kinds, both theoretical and material. But as, as a transformative public thing right now, it's the coalitional politics Um, That have the most potential to create lasting change. And so, you know, white people need strategies in managing despair. The nerdy ones like to read, right? The libertarian-ish ones like to go and wear their masks and hold the signs and scream at the protests. Everybody can find space to do activism in ways that meet their own, you know, abilities. But, at the end of the day, it's doing that work that manages the despair productively.
1: one thing i I want to get back to is talking about health care because I think that's been part of um the conversation that's was bubbling up before the coronavirus happened, especially with um activist politics that were supporting mm. Bernie Sanders healthcare is related to a lot of these other issues, like that it's tied to employment, um, is part of the reason why late wages are so low is as, you know, healthcare costs have ballooned and employers are taking on that cost, they're unable or unwilling to raise wages as well. I don't know. I think that healthcare it is one of those things that can change like really fundamentally bring change. Yeah, um, I
0: mean, medical debt alone.
1: It's number yeah, one cause of I mean, bankruptcy. medical debt
0: alone. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it will be very interesting to see, in some ways, how this is going to shape the presidential election, because, you know, everybody's like, what's Trump going to do? What's Trump going to do? And I'm like, how is this going to move Biden to the left? Right? Like, he's the guy, like it or not, obviously I don't. And yet this is a real opportunity, I think to push him and establishment Democrats in the house and Senate to the left. It's been interesting the last couple of days to see how many progressives are winning special elections and are winning primaries in the democratic party against, um, entrenched actors. It was great to see Steve King just get just fucking waxed in, um, Iowa. And I, I the change is afoot, right? So I wrote a list of things that people can do, and it included thinking about the down ballot and who they want to support um, and in thinking about larger institutional change, whether it's the Green New Deal or it's uh, Medicare for all or whether it's saving the U.S. Postal Service. You know, this is a moment to reimagine institutions and Americans have shitty imaginations. That's why they watch. We said this on the superhero, I think, episode. I said that, you know, this is why they continue to re deploy Superman every fucking 10 years, even though he's a little bitch. Right. We have no imagination. We can't think of new ideas. We rehash the same shit and can't get past it. This is a real moment to radically reimagine um, the institutions. But that takes effort, and it takes buy-in, and it takes persuasive power, and it takes, you know, architects who want to build a different future. And that's not how we train people to think in this country. We don't teach them how to think creatively. We oppose that. It's like mostly standardized tests and standardization. And for a whole host of reasons that I understand. But... I'm just saying that this moment calls for something different and a larger scale of vision that affects most people. Democracy is only as strong as its weakest member. You're only as strong as your weakest neighbor. Right. So the lifting and climbing mutual aid stuff. Seems very relevant in talking through this very issue, as whether it's Medicare for all or. What
1: have you. I like despair as an opposition to hope because I like that this moment it doesn't call for hope yes, correct, it calls for correct. action
0: louder for the kids in the back
1: <laughs> and so despair is the right feeling it's the right thing to create a generatively energetic response to what is the actual problem and not displacing blame especially on ourselves And not displacing that energy on complacency by just saying that we hope it gets better.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's better to act in some ways and be wrong than to sit on the sidelines. But the question is, when do you act? So what I do like about all of the interaction I've been having on the social medias is that people are like, what do I read? And I'm like, cool, cool, but I need you to skim that and then get back out into the public, you know? I need you to that's a lifelong the learning about the shit is a lifelong process is what I'm saying you know and every and all the white people are so far behind it's like playing catch up is not gonna that's not a good way to spend between now and November exclusively reading all the things but if you can read and take direction well that's like best case scenario and you've got some money to divest into black organizations community initiatives long-standing advocacy groups that have had success cool that's even better but it's like, you know, white people don't even know how to prioritize their action because they've never felt called to action. And then they have to deal with their moral failure about the fact that they've never really participated in this kind of social activism. So yeah.
1: you got to start somewhere. And there are people who have read yeah, those girl, things. So listen to them. It's just that this is the moment where you just got to take direction. That's it. Like, do whatever you can. There, You've got to start somewhere find what you can do and And I just
0: I just wish you know white people don't have a lot of initiative right so in some ways following orders is very white but it's also like get five of your friends and make a phone tree and choose one thing to work on right like we should save the U.S. Postal Service we should make D.C. a state like having two senators from the from the District of Columbia would be so fucking baller for progressive causes like forever do that you know, those all of those things contribute, especially for the people who are fragile or freaked out. It's like choose a, you know, a different adjacent issue that makes a huge difference. The U.S. Postal Service employs more black people than any other po- agency within the fucking federal government. Go save them. Go agitate for them. Raise people 's consciousness about them, badger your congressional delegations about them. volunteer for a campaign it 's like the the opportunities are endless, but white people get immobilized because they are so far out of political activism and it 's like get over yourself people who who are lifelong yeah. activists got there because they had to. It was a survival thing they didn 't have the option to like peruse the issues like they were on you know they were like shopping on Amazon all day so you know, it doesn't matter where you plug in. You just have to do it and you have to commit yourself to growth. And I think that that's a very hard thing because committing oneself to growth um, acknowledges that there are areas that are that need improvement and why people are not good about that.
1: I think people are worried, like, if they start doing act- activism, they're not going to be good at it or they're not, you know, they want to be they want to do it the right way. But you can't have that ego yeah. about it. There's going to be moments where you get it wrong And you need to hear that criticism and move on. And then there are things you can do. You just have to pick one thing to start a, like I think abolishing the death penalty is not far out of reach. Like write a letter.
0: You know, part of it is that white people don't help others (laughs) that are not like them. So it, it, it feels awkward to try and, F- figure out that space where you're you have to be vulnerable and you have to be honest and you are going to have some sorts of failures there will be failures in those moments and I feel like especially for the white ladies who are perfectionists um, you know all of the pussy hat wearing ladies that's ex- especially difficult for them because they want to be loud and they want to take up space And then they end up stepping on toes and people get pissed because they're not listeners. They were not groomed to listen. They were groomed to be little patriarchs, even on the left. And so I think it's harder for them to figure out what kind of space to occupy um, because it means that they have to um, they feel like they're being passive and not feminist, which is ridiculous. Right. But fundamentally, that aggressiveness about you know, being the leader, or being the loudest or right marching in Washington against Trump, or whatever, all of that energy fundamentally undermines the cause because they don't have any class analysis and because the white ladies are still fundamentally totally fucking scared of black people. So, you know, if there's one thing that I would like to see would be white people who are not afraid. It's like you have all the social power, It's self-indulgent crap to be afraid of black people. It's so, so fucking wrong. And also, like, they have no sense that that's what's making them so uncomfortable. Right. So the thing that's making them uncomfortable and, you know, giving them anxiety is the fact that they're 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 deeply racist. So managing that is a real is a is a it's a hard thing. And yet, fundamentally, it has to happen if the culture is going to shift. And so for the white ladies, they need to get over their fear of black men. And so they embrace black women because they're not black men, because they're also deeply misandrist. Right. And so they white white women prefer working with black women because then they don't have to be in close proximity with black men, which is also totally fucking racist. And, you know, these are the unexamined feelings that white people have, white women have especially, uh, that I think hold progressive activism back. I know that they want to pretend like it's the patriarchs and structurally. okay, there's a case to be made that the white men have the you know, they hold the positions of power, certainly in the federal government, state government. But at the end of the day, it's white ladies who are aiding and abetting that. Right. And training little racists, too. So they have it that white ladies have a narrative about patriarchy that somehow doesn't include them. And that also has to be managed. And they have to take responsibility for the fact that they are deeply afraid of black men. They don't want to be yelled at by black men. They don't want to be in proximity with black men. They don't want black men to lead the movement. They don't want to say black names that are masculine. They don't want to think about trans men. Then they don't want to think about trans women either, but especially not trans men. I mean, you know, it's 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 a serious thing to come to terms with how deeply white femininity is structured by anti-blackness about black men. And I think it's an essential thing that has to be undone if racial justice is going to be a thing in America. And I think that the white ladies are deeply afraid. And I say this because I know they're listening and they don't want me to say it because it brings out all of this, these conflicted feelings in them, but it has to be said they would rather lead than let black men lead because they're more comfortable being the white patriarchs, quite frankly. And that's wrong. And so in movement politics, They need to get their head around class based coalition led by the most oppressed and the people who have been in the struggle the longest. And that means they're not going to be the experts. And that means that they're not going to get to yell directions. And that means that they won't have the resources necessary sometimes to push the thing forward. And coming to terms with that is a serious proposition, but it's what the moment calls for. And it's got to be a divestment from these fantasies of racial dominance that structure white femininity. And I say this, you know, as the gender person, as the feminist person, and we we roll on this feminist podcast all the time. But in this moment, it is a reckoning for the white women to divest from their racial fantasies. Because they're the ones who are holding the progressive stuff back. Quite frankly, it is not the Reddit trolls. It is not the Bernie bros. It is the white ladies, for sure, with their misdirected feminist stuff. And nobody wants to call them out because then they look like they're sexist. So, you know, here I am doing that work. <laughs>
1: I feel seen.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, you know, they want to be heroes. The white ladies want to be heroes. And that is totally the wrong way to think about the moment. Yeah. It's the, it's the labor. It's thing. a lot of work. They have shitty labor politics and they have shitty gender politics. And until they can get their head around both sides of those things, they're not going to be as effective as they could be. So so, you know, what I find amusement in sad funny. Right. Is it's like, how do I read more about the issues? It's like, I just need you to get straight with yourself. You know, I can explain to you the issue. About over policing and police budgets and mass incarceration and, you know, technology decommissioned from the war in Vietnam, and lack of police accountability and union contracts and the, the wall of silence. I could tell you all kinds of things about every issue you want to know. But at the end of the day, if you still get freaked out by black dudes. What fucking good does that do for you to know? It's like they want to take a test. They're like, I'm very good at test taking. I will read the book and then I will take the test. And then I then I have done my, my place because they want to be the good student. Because so that's how white femininity is structured around patriarchy. But that is not going to get the job done here. It has to be an authentic recognition of white complicity in anti-blackness, especially against black men and certainly black trans people. So. I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a moment that calls for a real a real deep honesty about the mechanics of patriarchy and how it produces racial um, precarity and anti blackness as as public policy and about how white women are driving that. And you know what? They don't even know. They don't even know that they're like, we have to protect the white ladies is what gets the police department's money. Like, oh, what about the white ladies? Get the police more money. That is how the argument goes. It's, it's always gone that way. It's gone that way since slave revolts. It's gone that way since the Fugitive Slave Act. All of the rationale for anti-black public policy has been protect the white ladies. And then white ladies leverage that all the time. And so they are an essential group that has to have a come to Jesus about how deeply they benefit from anti-black public policy anyway that is very ranty but they and they're not gonna hear it anywhere else <laughs> nobody else is gonna be honest with them about the the way that they are structuring the problem do you know what I'm saying Laura
1: yeah I mean confronting yourself is that's part of it but just being uncomfortable like that's the whole thing it's yep. like we all just to be comfortable discomfort is key. Especially I mean, in moments you know, like I'm
0: also here to call out the white gay dudes, right, who supported Mayor Pete, because they're also part of the problem. But it's so much smaller than the white ladies, you know, but they're also fundamentally shoring up white supremacy and in ways that are extremely problematic. So, you know, white people get yourselves together get out of your despair. It's self-indulgent and come and build action by confronting your own uh emotional and social limitations and your benefit the way that you benefit from anti-blackness